In the construction business and can't find what you need, Quality Supply and Tool has served Hoosiers for over a quarter of a century. Tom Hawk is the branch manager of the Indy location on South Harding Street. We've always been big on keeping our shelves fully stocked of inventory of industrial-grade tools, concrete, masonry products, as well as the necessary accessories to help get the job done. You don't have it, you can't sell it. Our experience allows us to help with getting the pros as well as the weekend pro taken care of. Quality Supply and Tool also has locations in Bloomington, Lafayette, and Jeffersonville to help you think outside the box store. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson. Brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Hi there. How are you? Happy Friday weekend upon us. And, of course, it's going to be a great weekend because there are going to be race cars at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which is always fun. My name is Jake Query. Mike Thompson will Join in just a moment as well. Let me say thank you to all of you for participating and taking part in this show that we do each and every night in the month of May. Beyond the Bricks, Sam Fritz and Eddie Garrison help out as well. Donald Davidson kind of began this program, if you will, with Talk of Gasoline Alley, which we are literally simply a spinoff and probably a really bad spinoff at that. Mike Thompson, for that matter, I would say like when the Brady Bunch tried to spin off Kelly's kids and it, I think it lasted one episode. That That's kind of what we are. But we still have fun being able to carry on some of the heritage and history of the older stories of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway by your audio archives, allowing people to hear from those people who have made this event so great. I was worried for a minute there you were going to say we were the mod to all in the family or something. <laughs> that too. <laughs> There are several that you could go with, right? But yeah, I um, I think that we people in, who listen to the show know how much we love Donald and how much reverence we have for Donald for what he started. And you know, just to be in the slot, you know, as the spinoff, you know, if I, look, if I'm the if I'm the co-host of Donald, the, the spinoff to Donald's show, that's a pretty big honor for me because you know what Donald did was an amazing, amazing thing for the longevity and and how much reverence we all have for Donald and I. I'm just happy that we're, you know, keeping that tradition alive and telling the stories uh, in the month of May. There have been colorful characters that have driven in the Indianapolis 500. There have been colorful characters that have turned a wrench in the Indianapolis 500. There are colorful characters that have broadcasted the Indianapolis 500. And there are also great characters and personalities that have made it all possible because they have owned race cars that have participated in the greatest spectacle in racing. As a matter of fact, some of those owners, of course, themselves were driving in it. Some of those owners that were driving in it were winning in a car that they owned. We certainly have seen that even within recent history. But Mike, I think oftentimes when we talk about the faces, the names, and the legacies at IMS, maybe sometimes we overlook some of those owners. So tonight, that's exactly what we're going to spotlight. Yeah, I think that's what's nice about the show. We get to spotlight some things and some people that we wouldn't otherwise, you know, you wouldn't get to hear from some of these different people. And you may know the name, 
Lindsey Hopkins, or you may know the name, uh, you know, Rolla Volstead, but you may have never heard from those folks. So I think it's really fun that we get an opportunity to spotlight those people. You know, one of those people that we will begin with tonight has one of the great driving records, Mike, in the history of the event. As a matter of fact, I think you could say if you were to make a list of drivers that did not win the 500, sure, Michael Andretti comes to mind. He's led more laps than any non-winner in the history of the Indianapolis 500. But you've got to go on the way back. But if you look at the driving record from both the qualifying and racing standpoint of Harry Hartz, you're talking about one of the great competitors out at 16th and Georgetown. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as a driver, he started, you know, second, 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 third, second, fourth. <laughs> you know, so, you know, Harry Hartz was was a great driver, finished third or second three different times. So just as a driver alone, Harry Hartz was a hall of fame type type driver and then of course became a great car owner as we'll discuss but uh an incredible incredible driver his driving standpoint as you had discussed he first came to indianapolis in 1922 he started in the middle of row number one that's exactly where he finished as a matter of fact he was running at the end of the race harry hartz was running at the end of the race in the first of the four indianapolis 500s that he ran in terms of running to completion and again in 1926 when he was running in the rain fell on lap 158 and again in 1926 he started second finished second 1923 started second finished second 1924 started second finished fourth 1925 started third finished fourth and then in 1927 he started in the fourth position and finished in the 25th but there were a number of things and ways in which he was involved in racing because not only was he somebody that could drive a car, reality is, Mike, he was a guy that could work on one as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and just talking about that record, I mean, you think about the fact that, first of all, at Indianapolis, he had six starts and he finished in the top five, five of the six starts. That's pretty impressive. But, you know, as, a, as an owner, I think what's interesting about him is, you know, he, he actually got injured in an accident in, in 1927. And then he, you know, he felt like he was going to be able to come back from that. And then he, he really didn't feel like he was all the way back to the, to the level he wanted to be at. And so, uh, Billy Arnold in 1930 kept kind of pestering him to, to give him a chance in his car and, and Harry Hart's, you know, Harry Hart's had plans to drive that car himself. You know, he was like, you know, this is an opportunity for me. And, and uh, here's Billy Arnold and Billy Arnold says, you know, Hey, gee, I sure would love a chance in that car. And he puts Billy Arnold in the car. And what do they do? Billy Arnold goes out and wins the pole, wins the race. You know, in terms of the automobile, Harry Hart's, with some of the great names of auto manufacturers was tied into so many of them. He drove a Duesenberg, for example. He went to the World's Fair and put on exhibitions for Chrysler. He, you know, he obviously later worked for Studebaker for a number of years. There were a number of different areas in which Harry Hartz was involved in racing. He had been a riding mechanic. He ran board tracks. He did a number of different things. But Mike, talk to me a little more about the transition of Harry Hartz, the driver, into Harry Hartz, the owner. Well, again, I think it came from the fact that he, you know, once the he got injured, he, he had to transition. You know, that happened, uh, you know, fairly quickly for a lot of people. Like we talked about George Souders. I mean, George Souders' career ended very quickly 
Um, unfortunately, that happened for like uh, Lee Wallard, you know, guys in later in life. But, you know, for for Harry Hartz, you know, he was injured pretty badly in a crash in 1927. And it just didn't work out for him to get back to the level he wanted to get back to. And so, you know, he wanted to stay in the sport. You know, he was he was a guy who was, you know, a lot of these guys. I think you brought this point up and I think it's a very salient point uh, in a previous show. A lot of these guys, you know, they're racing lifers. You know, they they want to stay connected to the sport. And so, you know, Harry Hart's had this accident and he wanted to figure out a way to, you know, stay in the sport after this accident he had at, at Rockingham in 1927. And so, you know, car ownership was sort of the next next transition for him. And, uh, you know, he became a very, very successful car owner. I mean, he, you know, in 1930, as I said, you know, we won with, with Billy Arnold. Uh, you know, had success with uh, Fred Frame and, you know, became one of the biggest names uh, as an early car owner there was. Matter of fact, that name that he developed became so big that he was hired by different car manufacturers to do different publicity things after his racing career was over with. DeSoto hires him to drive backwards in exhibitions across the country. There are a number of ways that Harry Hartz stayed involved within the automobile. But, Mike, take us through what we're about to hear in terms of a sound clip from Harry Hartz. Well, it's another opportunity that I think Sid really liked getting the guys, you know, the quote unquote, the old timers on. And this is an opportunity where Sid had, uh, you know, he found Harry Hartz and, and he said, hey, you know, I'd like to get you on the radio network. So here's uh, an opportunity for Harry Hartz to be on the uh, IMS radio network with Sid. Now, alongside us here is Harry Hartz, who drove back here in the 1920s and is a legend of auto racing himself and recently elected just a few days ago as president of the old timers club, weren't you, Harry? Yeah, that's right, uh, Sal. I became president of the Five-Year-Old Timers Club, and I'm quite happy about that. Harry, you heard two different comments here about uh, qualifying up front or in back. How was it when you ran? Did it make much difference where you qualified? Well, <clears throat> I, I believe that uh, Paul Goldsmith is just modest, which he uh, always uh, is. But no, I think qualifying up front uh, definitely has an advantage because uh, one year uh, with me when Billy Arnold uh, qualified in 31, uh, he had the pole position. We re-qualified and started in 18th place. And he drove like a maniac that day and just got cared, uh, uh, keyed up, trying to pass a lot of cars and went and went over the wall uh, that particular year. So I think starting on front has a, a definite advantage. Harry, how well did you qualify? Well, uh, you don't mind being bragging a little bit. <laughs> just, just the facts. If they're good, we won't call them bragging. <laughs> well, I was fortunate enough to uh, qualify in the front row five consecutive years. Uh, I thought that was uh, pretty good. And we were talking about speeds. Instead, I've been asked many times about the speed and, well, how would you fellows feel uh, in a car today? Well, that's pretty hard to answer because I think, after all, speed is only comparative. And I, and, uh, I think a good way to put that is last year, Parnelli Jones at 150 mile an hour, and he was fast. Well, this year, here's Paul Goldsmith and six straight others have done 150 miles an hour. So uh, it's pretty hard to answer whether uh, I, well, we drove pretty hard, at least we thought we did in our days. And, and uh, I think setting up in the front row five consecutive times is pretty good proof that I was trying anyway. That's a record, isn't it, Harry? Yes, I, I, I think um, uh, one other driver, oh, uh, Jack McGrath, uh, tied that, and he, he qualified. Well, of course, Jack sat on the pole, I think, uh, one year or more. But Jack did qualify in the front row uh, five consecutive years. Harry Hartz, by the way, passed away in Indianapolis at the age of 77 in 19. 19- 74. There were a lot of great owners that 
participated at IMS in different capacities from afar. There were some that were more intricately involved. Harry Hart's obviously one of those that was very involved. Then there are those, Mike, that might have owned a car that finished well, yet they couldn't go down to the pits to watch exactly what was taking place. Talking about, for example, the one that owned the car that Art Cross brought home second in 1953. Yeah, Bessie Lee Paoli is who we're talking about. And uh, this is actually a pretty rare interview. Um, the interview, we'll, I'll set it up later as we get closer to it. But Bessie Lee Paoli, as you said, wasn't allowed. I mean, she was a car owner. And this this was a situation, um, Donald likes to point out these things, that she owned the car. It wasn't a you know, name and title or, or the uh, the car was placed in her name by her husband. She was the car owner and, and she was the one making the decisions. In fact, she mentions that in the interview, uh, but she was not allowed to go in, you know, in the, the pits where her, you know, her car was running because at that point, women were not allowed in the pits, as you just alluded to. Bessie, uh, excuse me, Bessie Lee Paoli was... The part owner, co-founder of Springfield Welding and Auto Body, and in that capacity uh, was involved with the automobile. And and again, Mike, I want to go back to um, this was not the most common of things in 1953, right? I mean, we're talking about something that was fairly, I would assume, fairly groundbreaking of the era. No, there weren't weren't a ton of of uh, women owners at that point. I mean, uh, Miss Mary Holman George obviously was one, but uh, no, you're right. I mean, there wasn't a ton of, of female owners at that point, no. So we have here, and the reason this is, I would assume, rare audio is because not only is it somebody in Bessie Lee Paoli that may not have had a lot of interview requests, I don't know, in that era back in 1953, but as you point out, uh, this was actually done in a – this is not the typical Sid Collins-type interview, right, Mike? No, this is actually conducted by Floyd Davis, who was the co-winner in uh, 1941 with Maury Rose. He actually had a radio show briefly for a couple years and, and uh, was actually on the Speedway Radio Network at one point briefly as well. But he and Charlie Brockman had a show called Speedway News. I've been doing a little bit more research into this. I originally thought it appeared on WIBC, but it actually appeared on a competitor station. Um, and they had their own show, and it was kind of a competing show to Sid's uh, Speedway Gossip Show, where they would interview different folks, uh, you know, about the happenings of the day. You know, kind of a talk of gasoline alley type show, where updating people on what had happened that day. And so they had a show called uh, Speedway News. And they interviewed Bessie Lee Paoli. And actually, Floyd Davis and Bessie Lee actually know each other. They're from the, the same town. So they actually knew each other going into the interview. So it's actually a pretty fun little clip. She became the first female owner of an IndyCar in February of 1952. She, of course, as we had mentioned, was the owner of the second place running car of Art Cross in 1953. And here is the voice of Bessie Lee Paoli. But Floyd, in the last three years that we've been on the air, and you've had uh, a lot of people up here to interview, I must say that your interviewee this evening is just about the prettiest one in the whole bunch. <laughs> There's no doubt about that, Charlie, and uh, great friends. Uh, this evening, this is a real pleasure to yours truly. I have a different type of an interview up here. She's a very grand person. She's an old friend of mine. And I don't mean she's old. She was, when she was a kid, she admired me in racing, so she tells me, and she's been a friend for several years. She's, she's from my own hometown. 
Springfield, Illinois. In fact, uh, rather uh, a novelty in racing, so to speak. She is a lady race car owner, and I'm here to tell you that I had a lot, I do a lot of persuading to get Mrs. Paoli up here to talk. She doesn't want any publicity, but after a lot of persuasion, for all friends' sake, she finally consented to come up. Uh, Beth, it's grand having you up here, and uh, how is the old hometown? Well, it's uh, just about like when you left it, Floyd, and it's an honor to be up here with you. Well, thanks a lot, Beth. Now, uh, on this race car you have here, uh, do you, you own that yourself? Yes, Floyd, that's my car. Your husband has, has no interest in it. That is financial interest. No financial interest, although I think he's interested. Beth, you, ever since I've known you, you've been a, been a race fanatic. Now, uh, I imagine this will uh, be realizing one of your life dreams. Well, it certainly will, Floyd, and it is. It's grand. Do you intend to manage this yourself, this race car, or you, do you have one of the boys doing no, that? No, uh, Placement is managing everything for me. Doing a wonderful job, I think, Floyd. Well, uh, Beth, I don't know how you could have picked a better man. I, I've known Clay for quite a number of years, and when he puts, uh, picks up a wrench, he does something with it. And uh, I feel sure that you'll have no trouble getting in this race. You know your boy turned some 135 mile an hour laps a short time ago. Yes, I'm quite proud of the fact. And by the way, Chuck Stevenson is quite a boy, too. He's uh, very capable on all types of tracks, including this one. And that affects some of the boys, though. When they come over here, they can't get around this track. Some of the best dirt track boys, but Chuck doesn't seem to have that trouble. Uh, do you intend to campaign this the car on all the championship dirt? Oh, yes, definitely, fine. You know, Beth, I noticed the car was number 16. For some unknown reason, I have a deep place in my heart for that number 16. Well, uh... That was the number that was on the car when I won out here. Well, Grand, sorry. Uh, I hope it serves you as well as it did me. <laughs> but I believe that number is either uh, one out here more times than any other number, but that is second place, I can say that. Uh, outside of winning here, I imagine one of your greatest ambitions will to be uh, will be to uh, win the 100-mile championship race in Springfield, Illinois. Well, that would be mighty grand, but uh, we just want to have good luck everywhere and not have any accidents or anything happen that would be injurious to anyone. Speaking of Springfield, Mike, and you were on your toes here, I was going off of actually the obituary from 1996 that listed Bessie Lee Paoli, quote, the first woman owner of an IndyCar that happened in February of 1952, and they needed you as a copy editor, correct? That's correct, because she's not the first female owner of an IndyCar. Um, I actually, uh, I was sitting there telling our our producer, wait, no, that's not right. Um, Maud Yeagle was the first. Maud Yeagle owned Ray Keach's winning car in 1929. And uh, there's always been a lot of kind of controversy about Maud Yeagle, whether she was actually the owner of Keach's car or not. And when I worked at the uh, the facility in the infield with Donald, uh, we looked it up on the entry blank, and it was signed M.A. Yeagle, 
Maude Yeagel, she signed the entry blank as the as the owner of the car. So she was the owner and the entrant of of Ray Keach's winning car in 1929. So she she was definitely the owner of the car. So she was the first, and she was the first. Um, you know, she's the 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 first and only uh, female owner of a of the Indianapolis 500 winning car. Now Bessie Lee Paoli, in uh, to say to her, she did win the championship. As a car owner, they they won the championship in in 1952 with Chuck Stevenson, and they nearly won the 500. Art Cross finished second in the 553, but uh, Maud Diego would be the first, uh, you know, female car owner in the Indianapolis 500. It is listed officially in the box score. M A Yeagle, you are correct for 1929. We come back. Some of the other owners whose names are a little harder to spell, but a little easier to remember. Not to say they're easier to remember than those we've talked about. I'm just saying uh, familiar names at the Speedways. We take a look in this episode, Car Owners at the Indianapolis. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. This is Sid Collins with the latest news on the 500-mile race from the Speedway at Indianapolis. Meet Jimmy Bryan, AAA national champion in 1954. Jimmy figures to be one of the top contenders for a visit to Victory Lane this year at Indianapolis. Thanks, Sid. This is my fifth year at the Speedway here, and I think my chances are better this year than they ever have been before. Well, the makers of Mobile Oil will again be supplying the engine oils for the cars here at Indianapolis. As you know, Jimmy Bryan, they're experts on lubricants. And that's a good reason why Mobile Oil Special is such a terrific engine oil for all automobiles on the highway. Jim Bryan, you drive a 1956 Buick. Have you tried Mobile Oil Special in it? Well, that's all I ever use, Sid. See, I live in Arizona, and it gets quite cold in the winter and pretty hot in the summer, and that's all that will take the heat and the cold both. And I also use Mobile Oil products for my race car, incidentally, for six years. Well, there you have it from an expert. For more reliable and economical operation, get Mobile Oil Special in your own automobile at every sign of the Flying Red Horse. That was from 1956 with Jimmy Bryan and Sid Collins. Of course, Jimmy Bryan would later go on to win the Indianapolis 500-mile race. It would not be in 1956. But that's not to say that he didn't have plenty of opportunities to do so. He drove the Dean Van Lines in 1956. And in doing so, Mike Thompson, the reality is Jimmy Bryan was driving for a guy who opened plenty of doors for plenty of legendary names. We're talking about Al Dean. That's right. I mean, if you look at the drivers who drove for Al Dean, I mean, that is a who's who of racing. I mean, the people who drove for Al Dean, I mean, A.J. Foyt, Mario Andretti, Eddie Sachs, Jimmy Bryan. I mean, Bob Swiker. This is a a list of names, you know. Some of the all-time greats. And, you know, Al Dean, I think most people are familiar, at least if they're from the area under of my age bracket. Dean Van Lines is something that was known around town and the reality is this is a man mike that built himself essentially a business empire that allowed him the opportunity to not only bring in great young drivers at indianapolis but also provide that opportunity for as we talked about some of those that became legendary but this is somebody that was involved in throughout the city of 
uh, Indianapolis in terms of just being involved with the race because of his own business ventures. That's right, and and he was self uh, self made, you know, star in business. I mean, he started his moving van company in 1944, and I think he had a few dollars. He said in a used one like used truck, and that's all he had. And he built it into this massive, you know, moving empire basically. And so, you know, a guy who who you know, great success story, and loved racing, and just wanted to be involved with racing, and you know, came very close to winning the 500 a couple of times. I mean, came close to winning it with Sachs, came close to winning it with Brian, won the national championship with Mario. So. Uh, outstanding career in racing for Aldine. Won 38 national championship races that Aldine is an owner from 1953 to 1967, the first coming in the inaugural Hoosier 100 with Bob Swikert behind the wheels. So you know you're talking about somebody that had plenty, plenty of talent running for him. Mike, set us up with what we're going to hear here from Aldine. Uh, this is Aldine and, and Sid. Uh, you know, Sid got a lot of different people to to do interviews with him, and it wasn't just drivers. I mean, Sid really liked to talk to the car owners. He had a very special relationship with J.C. Agajani, and Aggie would come on every year and talk to Sid. So Sid liked to spotlight the owners, the people who were, you know, footing the bill, basically, for racing. And so this is Sid and Aldine. We've moved out of the master control tower just off the pit area here at Indianapolis. We're talking with Mr. Al Dean, the owner and entrant of the Dean Van Line Special. He has two cars in this year's race. Al, I wonder why one of the cars has an upright engine and one has a flat engine. Are you experimenting to see which one's the most successful for future years of racing? Well, uh, Sid, uh, there has been considerable controversy about the advantages of the uh, flat engine automobile as the uh, as compared with the upright engine. Of course, last year we had an upright uh, automobile that uh, did quite well, but uh, it's difficult to argue with success. And this year we're uh, in it with a flat engine car to satisfy ourselves on whether or not there is any real advantage in uh, having the engine flat in the automobile. Of course, the low silhouette that the flat engine uh, permits uh, makes for better visibility, and that is a decided advantage, in my opinion. However, the other advantages, the low center of gravity and the advantage in the turns, I don't know. If you'll recall, the Fast Five qualifiers last year were up- upright engine automobiles. And unfortunately, the action didn't permit the people that had qualified in that fashion to prove anything against the flat engines that were so successful in coming in, as you know, one, two, three. Aldine, what kind of an engine did you have when you had your driver, Jimmy Bryan, win the race in the Dean Van Line Special at Monza, Italy in 1957? Well, one of the two cars that I have, uh, Sid, is that very same automobile that won at Monza, and I've seen the car travel at speeds of 175-plus on the banks at Monza. Uh, Jimmy Bryan, of course, uh, led the race a couple of years with it, and uh, he picked up a third the same year that we went to Monza. So it's been a very fine automobile, and of course, we have been subjected to some of the vagaries of the racing business in the way of mechanical failure. Now, was that an upright engine at Monza? That was an upright engine, and it's the very same car that we have here in uh, competition with with our own flat engine to see what uh, we can find out about the... Uh, difference in the two types of automobiles. We're not going to worry too much about that noise. That's what the pits are for here at Indianapolis, as you very well know, Al. Your drivers this year are A.J. Foyt from Texas and Elmer George from Speedway City, Indiana. We know you've had A.J. with you for several years now, but how did you happen to choose our Midwest champion? Well, of course, Elmer has quite a, uh, quite a record of his own. A lot of people are not cognizant of some of the accomplishments of this boy. I frankly picked him as a bit of a sleeper and a dark horse. 
Uh, he was the 1957 uh, sprint champion. And great people like Bob Swikert and Pat O'Connor and boys that we've had here uh, run so successfully have cut their teeth on the banks, as you know. So I think Elmer is a boy with an awful lot of uh, uh, chance in this race, an awful lot of potential. Now tell me one question with a very short answer. Why do you own and enter race cars? Well, I, I acquired a fascination for these things back in 1946, and I guess it just got in my blood, Sid. Well, I think you're a very, very fine competitor with great drivers in the past. You've had Vukovic, Faulkner, Ward, now Foyt and George. Good luck to you, Aldine. Thank you very much, Sid. Now let's move to another area here on the Speedway grounds. And in case you're wondering, Elmer George, of course, would marry M-A-R-R-Y, Mary Holman, daughter of Tony Holman, thus Mary Holman George, the name. Now, Mike, when it comes to those drivers that they were talking about that had won races for Aldine, that had um, gotten the opportunity to run, perhaps in many cases, for the first time in national championship races, that includes one of them who won 17 times for him and went on to probably the most decorated career in motorsports. Absolutely. Uh, Mario Andretti had an incredible career for Dean Van Lines, won the championship in 65 for Dean Van Lines, won the championship again in 66 for Dean Van Lines. Unfortunately, uh, sadly, at the end of 1967, um, Al Dean had uh, been, been very sick and he passed away at the age of 61 at the end of 1967. And there was a lot of question about what was going to happen with the race team. And Originally, it was thought that um, there was provisions in the will for the race team just to go on. And uh, apparently, according to the book, I've read Mario's book several times, uh, you know, the, the book that Mario put out and uh, after he won the 500, th- he was very surprised to learn all of a sudden that the race team would have to be sold and, you know, shocked to learn that. And they didn't want to they didn't want to break up a winning combination. They had, you know, Jim McGee and they had Clint Bronner and they didn't they didn't want to break up this combination. So Mario ended up having to to basically cobble together and buy the team and become a team owner kind of reluctantly. So a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with Mario and I asked him about, you know, hey, did you you know, what did you think of that experience? Because in the book, you kind of give an impression that it really wasn't that much fun. So I had the opportunity to talk to Mario about being a team owner briefly. I want to ask you a question that maybe you have never been asked, but you briefly after the passing of Aldine, you owned the team. Uh, was that a lot of extra work? Was that ever fun? I mean, in, in the book, you kind of mentioned it doesn't ever strike me as you had a lot of fun doing that. Was it fun at all owning your own team or were you kind of happy to not have to do that anymore? Well, the fact that I only owned it for one year, I will tell you the story. You know, I, I was, uh, it, it was something that I almost had to do at the time just to keep things going, uh, and and it was an easy transition. You know, I had to take on the reins, if you will, at the, at the moment. But um, uh, I didn't enjoy because, uh, as you can see, even then, you know, I was moving around. I was, you know, even in '68. Uh, I even did my first Formula One race, you know, debut, and I was doing sports cars. I was doing a little bit of everything, you know, stock cars, and I wanted to move around. I didn't want to be tied down, you know, to my uh, worrying about, you know, the team, everything. Is it all financed properly and all that? <clears throat> so as soon as um, uh, I connected with Andy Grantelli um, and I uh, said, hey, you want to buy the team? 
It says, uh, yep. I said, you got it. <laughs> and and uh, so I got out from under it quickly and, uh, and never never attempted, never needed, never wanted uh, to, to be a team owner again. All I wanted to do is drive. So when Michael decided to do it, you didn't say to Michael, but I've done that. Do you really want to do this? Well, it's actually, it's different. Michael cherishes that mm. role. I mean, that's something that he likes the business side of it. And um, and he loves it. You know, it's. Uh, I think he, uh, he even came out of the cockpit a little bit too early. I think, uh, and uh, to just pursue this. And uh, as you can see, he's got both feet in it. You know, um, but uh, it's a different way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I probably enjoyed driving more than Michael did in that sense. Uh, you know, I'm just saying. You know, but uh, uh, again, uh, believe me that that's that's something that uh, he's very happy with and. Um, fits that mold perfectly. Mario Andretti, by the way, also drove for Colin Chapman. Matter of fact, he won the world championship for him. Here's Colin Chapman on his first year at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in 1963. Very special guest in our opinion, Mr. Colin Chapman, who heads the Lotus team here from London, England. We're thrilled to have you on hand because each and every year our race grows bigger with the addition of folks like yourself, Mr. Chapman. Well, we're very pleased to be here. This is the first time we're competing at Indianapolis, and we are competing with a car rather unconventional by your standards, but uh, we're shaking ourselves in, and we hope to have a good race here on the 30th of May. The Lotus by Ford this morning had trouble with Dan Gurney, did it not? Yes, we were unfortunate enough to spin out on the first turn, and uh, Dan's car was very severely damaged, but we're making ready our spare car, and uh, he'll be running that later on this afternoon. Did Dan say what happened this morning? I think he, he just lost it, just went a little quick. You don't know if it's wind or anything else? It could have been the wind. The, the conditions this morning here have been very bad for, for running fast, and uh, it's quite possible that the wind caught him as he was going into this first turn. Now, Jim Clark qualified second fastest after Parnelli Jones. Were you surprised? Uh, no, I was hoping Jim would do fairly well. I, I thought we might qualify a little quicker, but the uh, conditions here have been so bad this morning that uh, I think he was very, I was very pleased at the performance he did. Your boys and your team have a very tight schedule, haven't they? Could you recap for us what you've done since you've been in Indiana? Well, unfortunately, we have a, a World Championship series of races in Europe, which we are very interested in competing in, and we're having to fit the uh, Indianapolis race in on alternate weekends while we're in Europe uh, the other weekends racing. And we came over here in March, as you know, and uh, testing, and we went back to Europe and we did four motor races. And Jim was lucky enough to win three of them. Then we came back here and we did our practice, and we went back last weekend to Europe again, and uh, Jimmy won the Grand Prix at Silverstone. And now we're back here for qualifying, and next weekend we go back again to Europe and we have to qualify at Monaco for the Monaco Grand Prix. And then we come back here for race on the 30th. And don't you leave shortly thereafter for another trip to Europe? Yes, we then have to get away straight after the race for the Grand Prix of Belgium, which is held in Spa. Since we haven't had a chance to have your driver, Jim Clark, on the air with us, perhaps you can relay to us his comments about the Indianapolis Speedway. Well, he's, he's, uh, he says it's different. And uh, it certainly is a different sort of event. Um, he's very pleased to be here, and he rather likes the, 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 the type of race you have here. And he's most impressed with all the people, and uh, I know that uh, we've got a tremendous amount of help and cooperation from all the American competitors, and we're very pleased to be here. Now, Mr. Chapman, Graham Hill is not one of your team members here at Indianapolis with the Lotus by Ford entry, but he has had trouble, and as a world champion, maybe you care to comment as to why you think he's had difficulty. 
Well, Graham uh, is a first-class driver, make no mistake about that, and he's also one of the bravest. But he hasn't had a lot of uh, chance to uh, practice here for various reasons, and he's driving a car, an experimental car, which has a lot of unconventional features, and I think he's finding it a little difficult to drive. But uh, believe you me, if Graham had the equipment, he'd be up in the front there with, with, uh, with the best of them. Is there a chance, you think, in years to come, there'll be an avalanche of European drivers coming back to Indianapolis once again? I don't know about an avalanche. It's an extremely difficult race to fit in with our European program and an extremely costly one. But we would very much like to be here again next year. And uh, having learnt what we learnt now, we'll come back even better next year, we hope. Sir, were you aware of the superstition against the color green at Indianapolis before you arrived? Uh, no, we weren't. We, we run green cars because green is our international racing color and under the rules of our national racing club, we always have to run green cars when we compete abroad. Um, I hope this uh, uh, superstition for green isn't going to affect us in any way. It didn't today. Congratulations to you, Mr. Colin Chapman and the Lotus by Ford team. Well, thank you. Good luck in the 500, May 30. Thank you very much. Mr. Cullen Chapman. Now stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing. And as we know, green was, there was a lot of superstition about that. Not so much as uh, anymore, Mike, but back in the day, certainly, you don't talk about peanuts and you don't have a green car. That's right. And uh, I mean, even Freddie Aggravation, Sid likes to joke with Freddie Aggravation, he wouldn't even take green money at that point. So, <laughs> yeah, they didn't, didn't, didn't like the color green. I would imagine eventually they could figure out that part of it, right? I would, I would hope so. I would hope so because it makes it a little difficult to get it all in all the money and change, right? That's right. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue talking about owners at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And again, one of them with a very familiar name. And you'll hear from him in his own words when we return to Beyond the Bricks. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Beyond the Bricks, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Jake Query, Mike Thompson, Eddie Garrison, Sam Fritz, all here with you on Beyond the Bricks as we're talking about some of the car owners over the course of time at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Mike, Mickey Thompson was a guy that... Essentially, if it had two wheels and it moved in some way, in some form, and at some speed, notably really high one, Mickey Thompson was probably involved. Absolutely. I mean, this this guy, I mean, he was the first American to, to reach 400 miles an hour, hot rodder, uh, land speed record holder, uh, just all around, I mean, guy who was involved. If, if it, as you said, if it was speed, it, it's Mickey Thompson. You know, it's interesting because he began his career actually like the two of us, I guess, you know, trying to pursue um, initially as a writer or, or, or working, I guess you'd say a pressman, not even a writer, but working for the Los Angeles Times, working for the newspaper, but always had a thing for things that went fast and even necessarily, uh, not necessarily, I should say, in the form of initially being involved in sanctioned racing i mean 
whether it be drag racing, hot rods, souping up cars, whatever it might be, Mickey Thompson was involved in exactly that. But in addition to land speed records and hot rod drag racing, uh, Mike, like so many that were involved in auto sports at that time, he found his way to Indianapolis. That's right. He came to Indianapolis in 1962, and uh, many people may not remember that Dan Gurney drove his you know, first 500 with Mickey Thompson. And so that's an interesting factor. And we heard in the last segment with uh, Colin Chapman talking about uh, Graham Hill. Graham Hill tried to drive with Mickey Thompson in 1963. That didn't work out. But Mickey Thompson was always trying to innovate. He was always trying at the Speedway different things. He didn't want to do anything conventionally. He he uh, tried, you know, smaller, uh, smaller wheels and, you know, different uh, – you know, 12 inch tires and things like that. And, and at one point he even had an all wheel drive car that, uh, that, uh, you know, the, the steering steered both the front and the rear wheels and things like that. So he was always innovating. Here is Mickey Thompson. Our next guest is one of the most determined men on a racetrack or off one. He holds a one-way land speed record at Bonneville in his car, the Challenger, of 406 miles per hour. But this year, he brought five automobiles to Indianapolis, and Mickey Thompson's a man who says he's going to win this race someday, no matter how long it takes. Within reason, I trust, Mickey. Uh, someday we hope to sit up probably two or three years away from now, but we're getting closer all the time. Now, these cars you have are called the Mickey Thompson Harvey Aluminum Specials and variations of that name because there are five cars, and they're most unusual and radical. I wonder if you describe the cars to our audience, wheel size, so on, and the aluminum features thereof, and give us a run on what's happened to the five so far this month. Well, Sid, I think the most controversial ones are the ones that have the small tires on their 12-inch tires since they use the midget race cars uh, at the regular midget races. Uh, They are powered by rear-engine Chevrolets. They weigh a little over a thousand pounds, which you know is about 500 pounds lighter than a conventional Offenhauser. And uh, I think in a year or so you'll see these cars uh, really going fast around this racetrack. You're the man who brought the rear-engine car to Indianapolis last year with Dan Gurney. Does it make you pleased that you're being uh, copied this year? Yes, it does, Sid. Go ahead and run through the rest of the activities of your racers, your drivers, and your five cars for us, if you will, sir. Well, we have a very unusual circumstance right now, Sid. We have five cars and only two race drivers. Of course, we came here with the idea of getting two. If we had two race cars in the race, we'd be very, very happy. And right now, Masson Gregory has done a terrific job for us. He's had three of our cars running over 147 miles an hour, but unfortunately, he only could drive one of them come race day. Then Dwayne Carter's ran one of the cars over 148 also, so that's the two cars we hope to have in the race. Right now, as you know, Maston Gregory has uh, ran uh, a little over 147 and a half miles an hour in his qualification runs today, and next week well, we'll have Dwayne Carter uh, qualifying the other car. Before I talk with Maston, Mickey, this car of yours has fuel tanks along the sides of the car, uh, so the front-to-rear weight distribution will not be changed when the tanks are empty or full. How well is that working out? Working out very good, Sid. We've uh, uh, put the fuel tanks all on one side, on the inside of the racetrack, and as the fuel weight goes down, it's compensated for it by the race car, and so far we think it's a right idea, although a lot of people disagree with us. Of course, all of our cars, are dis- uh, people are disagreeing with them anyway, so I think we'll be in good shape. Do you mind when people call your car a big go-kart, scooter, and caddy cart, and so on? No, we call it to skate around our own garage. I think it's very, very, I think it's funny. Uh, someday we hope that they are all skates around here because we think we're going the right direction. Thanks to you, Mickey Thompson. We'll look forward to your new book about your life coming out very soon. Uh, yes, it'll be published by Prentice Hall here. It's my life story. and will be published in about uh, six weeks, Sid. Small edition to match the small wheels? 
<laughs> no, it's quite large. Now, fans, stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing. Al Miller would finish ninth that year for Mickey Thompson in 1963, the year that interview took place. His teammate, the one you heard mentioned there, Dwayne Carter, would finish that race in 23rd. A lot of fun tonight, Mike, talking about some of the owners of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and always fun to do beyond the brakes. I think we should keep doing it. What do you say? I'm in. Let's do it. All right. For Sam Fritz, Eddie Garrison, I'm Jake Query for Mike Thompson as well. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Bricks.